Today, I want us to talk about a multifaceted word. And I, I want to do it in, in about two contexts, understanding that there are more than two contexts to this word. So I am not going to cover it in its total scope, okay? I'm just going to cover it in a few contexts. And the word is faith. Faith is a multifaceted word. It's a singular word that is multifaceted. And I want to cover it again just in a few contexts today. The book that we're about to go into in Becoming Heartstrong is the book of Hebrews. And it's a book about who Jesus is. And then how, because of who Jesus is, how we as his followers can trust who he is and what he has done for us. And it is written for a group of people. So when you're reading Hebrews, have this in your mind. That the people who were receiving this letter were having their homes burned They were having their homes taken from them and they were being imprisoned simply because they were following Jesus. And so the core of Hebrews is about having faith in God in the midst of profound persecution, struggle, and trial. This is the heart of it. And he is writing, the the author of Hebrews is writing to see who Jesus is, the Jesus who overcame the world and to trust And in reading that book, the book of Hebrews, you'll arrive at chapter 11, where a straightforward description of faith is given. And it says this, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, it says, now faith is, everyone just whisper, faith is. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, and it is the conviction of things not seen. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, and it is the conviction of things that are not seen. And so this is how faith is defined in the book of Hebrews. It is defined as assurance and it's defined as conviction. If this is what faith is, it invites the question, what isn't faith then? There is much in the Christian church that is mentioned about faith that I don't think is faith. It is just a way to express faith. So as an example, faith is never confined to your feelings. You can feel incredibly faithful or feel nothing and yet remain faithful. Your emotions are not a blessing or a burden. They just are a part of being human. And so faith is not always feeling it. It is abiding in it. And from abiding in it, we demonstrate it. Also, faith is not the same thing as positivity. You can absolutely be overwhelmed, yet remain in faith. You can experience profoundly negative things and and remain in faith. I am not saying that positivity or negativity don't have any interaction on our faith at all. I am just saying sometimes in the church, faith masquerades as exclusively positivity, and that's where you get delusion of reality where I can only say good, I can only do this, I can only think this, I can only experience this. And I understand, some of you are going like, but hang on now. I know, there's more facets of faith, but it's faith is never the denial of reality. It is trusting in the one who is 
more real than what it is that you're going, just going through who has the final word and the final say. It is trusting in Jesus. So for those in Hebrews, let me give it context. As they're losing their home, the writer of Hebrews is not denying that they're writing their home. He is saying to them, but also don't forget that this isn't your home. You have an earthly home that is greater than this. Not to deny what is happening, but to have their faith anchored in something greater than what is happening to them. It's different. Assurance and conviction. Jesus is who he said he is. When we trust this, it pleases God. Hebrews eleven six. without faith in who Jesus is, we can't please God. But it is also where Ephesians says that darkness aims its fiery darts. And more on that in a moment. Because the place where you exercise faith that pleases God is the same place where the enemy attacks and it is this singular collision, this singular point of meeting where there is a deepening and a profound discovery. And it is this. We can't, you can't have a faith is conversation without a first honest faith in conversation as well. So we can't talk about what faith is without first talking about in what is your faith rooted? In what is your faith anchored? What is your faith in is a greater conversation first than just what faith is. Darkness attacks who you place your faith in, not just that you have faith. Darkness attacks who you place your faith in, not just that you have faith. Let me explain it this way. What is temptation? If not an invitation to transfer your faith from being in Christ to something inferior. Yes? Not the removal or the loss of faith, but the transferring it to something other than Christ. It can be subtle or it can be seismic. This can happen in a tiny moment as much as it can happen in a defining moment. I'll give you some personal examples. I am a responsible person. I didn't say I was a competent one. But I'm a responsible person. So what you give me to steward, I will steward it. I'm a responsible person. But when my responsibility tips to control, my faith in myself becomes too high. In relationships... The Bible says for you and for I that God shall supply all of our needs. But sometimes in relationships, I don't trust God to supply all my needs. And where I don't trust God to supply all my needs, I look to you to supply all my needs. And when you don't supply all of my needs, I don't respond kindly. My faith that is to be in the God who will supply all my needs shifts and it becomes rooted in something else, and that's a problem. How many of you in here in life, by a show of hands, 
unashamedly have ever worried. Can I see your hands, please? Okay, to worry is to be human. There are plenty of things that the proper response to it is to be worried about it. But when our faith shifts from worry to anxiety, subtly or significantly, there's an invitation to root into something else. When your faith shifts from, scare, from abundance to scarcity, these are symptoms that your faith is not going away. It is shifting allegiance. Faith has a definite object. The Christian faith is in Christ. He is who, in whom our faith hopes for and is convinced of. He is whom our faith points to and fully rests on. That's the, that Tara Lee Cobble said that. The writer of Hebrews says it this way. Looking to Jesus, remember to a group of people who were experiencing persecution, who were losing their homes, who were being thrown in, in jail. The writer of Hebrews says to them, look to Jesus. What's the dot, dot, dot there? When you go through a storm, Jesus is sometimes an afterthought rather than a first response. And again, that doesn't make you a faithless person. It makes you a human being. Who we see this, where we trust in a God who sees this. The writer in Hebrews, that's why he says, look to Jesus. He is the founder and he is the perfecter of your faith. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to see it through to completion. God is alpha and he is omega. And so where God is at work in our lives is he is the one, the founder of our faith and he's the perfecter of our faith. So what is our job? Our job isn't to start it and our job isn't to make it perfect. It is to keep our eyes. It is to keep following Jesus. It is to keep looking to Jesus. And then it says, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame or the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him another thing that we can do who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or be faint-hearted. Loved ones, following Jesus, we get weary. It's tiring. Don't you ever just want to give someone a piece of your mind rather than pray for them? I'm serious. I do. Don't you ever sometimes not want to resist but just give in? Don't you ever sometimes when everybody at work gets to do this, but you are not just at work to please a boss, but to please your heavenly father, don't you sometimes just want to do what they get to do? It, you can feel weary in the midst of it. And this is what the writer of Hebrews is saying. You can grow weary or you can grow faint hearted that every step you take is contested. Every step, there's pushback. This can be tiring. But the writer of Hebrews is also highlighting this profound truth. Everybody in your family, each of your friends, every single person you work with, and every single driver you cut off this week, <laughs> every one of them, is a person of faith. People who follow Jesus are often called 
Oh, you're a person of faith. Every human being that sucks air is a person of faith. It's just we have faith in different things. Some of you are here today and you have faith in yourself. For others of you, you have faith in somebody else. As followers of Christ, our allegiance is to have faith in Christ. And from having faith in Christ, then we love others and we try to love ourselves the way Jesus loves us. But every person, I want you to pay attention this week as an exercise. I want you to listen to all of the arguments, all of the conversations, everything that you're surrounded with, whether it's by traditional media, social media, friends, families, conversations. I want you to listen to it. I want you to pay attention to two things. I want you to pay attention to it through the lens of, is this an invitation for me to root my faith? This is a statement of faith. Like I'll give you some, I'll give some concrete examples. As an example, uh, I've read a couple of financial books in my life. Not a lot because they mess me up with the numbers. As soon as you put, as soon as you put numbers, I'm in trouble. And then when you put letters in the numbers, <laughs> Lord have mercy. But I've read a few. And you know what's interesting? In the financial books that I've read, they always start with this principle. When you're paid, take the first 10% and pay yourself first. Most financial books say pay yourself first. Where did they get that? God's word. The only thing that they did is they substituted God for you. And that's just called humanism. Humanism is invitation for you and I to place our faith in humanity, in temporal things as eternal things. That's all humanism is. It is a statement of faith. I am not speaking about the people. I am not speaking about the subject at this moment. I am not. I am just saying what our culture is asking us to believe about sexuality takes tremendous faith. Takes tremendous faith. It's a statement of faith that one individual knows exclusively who they are as absolute and final. This is a statement of faith. It is asking you to put your faith in somebody, not the God who created them. It's a statement of faith. I just want you to pay attention to how often there are bids and invitations for you to root your faith in something other than God. They'll never come out and say, hey, this is a statement of faith, but I want you to pay attention to it. See, a core conversation of faith can't start with the measure of faith that you've been given or the maturity of our faith, but its source. In whom or what do you place your faith? And here's what I have found, is that in the trials of life, there is a discovery unlike any other thing that in the trials of life, I discover not my professed faith, my genuine faith. I love people until people treat me in a loving way. My professed faith is I love people. My genuine faith is I love people who love me. That's my genuine faith. We're a tolerant society is our professed faith. Unless you disagree with what I have as a core conviction, then I will treat you in the most intolerant way. This is our genuine statement of faith. 
Every person you meet is a person of faith. God is provider. He's Jireh. It's who he is. And you will go through life and seasons of your life where provision is scarce. And you will be tempted to define God by your experience, not by who he's declared himself to be. It is an invitation for you to root your faith in your experience as greater than God. And that's called idolatry. But it's all around us and it's a profound temptation. God is Rapha, he is healer. And church, because we don't live in delusion, you will see God heal and you will see God do miracles. And you will see people who follow Jesus and do everything right die in faith. And in that moment, you will be invited to root your faith in your experience rather than who God says he is. Some of you ask questions inside like, does anyone see me? Does anyone care at all? And you may walk into work. And people may not know whether you're there or not or care about you or not. Lo loved ones, here's all I know. The God of heaven knows the very number of hair on your head. In the Old Testament, the children of Israel enslaved said, did God even care? As you read through the book of Exodus, it says that their cry comes up before God. And it says that he sees and that he knows and that he cares. And you in some moments of your life will be tempted to believe even though Jesus said, I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you. You will be tempted to believe that you're all alone. Your spiritual enemy will never be kind to you. When you're going through your dark night of the soul, he will not pull back, he will lean in. But your heavenly father will also not pull back. He will be ever present in time of need, in time of trouble, in the collision of fiery dart and faith is you. One of the most mind-boggling things that Jesus said was the mere reality of you and I placing our faith in Christ will make you hated by the world around you. Now, you may be here today saying, the world doesn't hate me. I don't think the world cares. I don't think it even notices me which as I just mentioned is a profoundly different insight compared to the God who sees, knows, and loves you even on your worst day. Loved ones, if you transfer your faith from God to something else, I promise you, as long as you abide by its statement of faith, you're all right. But the moment you don't benefit its statement of faith, it will discard you on your worst day, when you were bankrupt to do anything for God, Christ died for you. Christ sees you. Christ loves you. Why is it that when people are at rock bottom, they discover Jesus? Sometimes because he's the only one who's still there. 
And that's not a statement of blame. Sometimes that's the reality of the life the people have created. But I'm trying to show you that what you choose to put your faith in, it matters and it's contested. Again, you may be saying, well, the world, like, I get how it hated Jesus, or I get how it persecutes in different countries. And yes, we need to care for the persecuted church all around the world who are persecuted simply because of their faith in Christ, who lose their life for the same Jesus that you profess, plus nothing else. This should profoundly bring us to our knees in prayer. But there's more than one way to hate somebody. Some people will hate you so much in life they will say it to your face. And other people will never say it to their, your face. They will just oppose you in every which way to undermine you from a place of hatred. And you may not even know it's them doing it. Loved ones, I love the nation of Canada. I am not in a culture war against the nation of Canada. God's for it, I'm for it. But it opposes you. It opposes your faith in Christ. It opposes everything you believe almost at every single turn. It does not love faith in Christ. Again, to those receiving the letter of Hebrews, hatred looked like them losing their homes and being jailed because of Jesus. And for a lot of followers of Christ, it looks exactly like that all around the world today. But just because hatred doesn't rise to the level of persecution doesn't make it less pervasive or destructive. Last, well, as I wind down here. James calls being hated by the world and tempted by darkness to abide, to root, to place our faith in something or anything other than Jesus. He calls it the testing of our faith. And his instruction is as profoundly seemingly absurd as it was then as it is today. And he says this, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Not joy in the trial. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect so that you may be perfect and complete. Not like perfect, I do no wrong, like whole, integrous, my faith is only in Christ. If any of you lacks wisdom, which is also humorous because every one of us does, like who doesn't lack wisdom, right? Number one thing prayed for in North America is wisdom, okay? If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. But let him ask in what? In faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like the wave of a sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let me say this with clarity. Doubt is never wondering why God did or did not answer a prayer. That's not doubt. That's not the doubt that James is talking about. Doubt is not wondering why your neighbor didn't lose their house and you did in the Hebrew context. That's, that's not doubt. No, the doubt that James is talking about, that Hebrews talks about, 
is when you define God by your circumstance, not allow God to define who he is himself. That is doubt. It is not wondering why God did or didn't do something. God's got big enough shoulders to handle all of that. But when you begin to try to redefine who God is based on your own understanding and your own experience, that's what's called being double-minded. Doubt is redefining who God is based on your own experience, which is a painful truth woven in to a deeper deception. Here's why. If I believe that God is not provider, it doesn't change the fact that God is still provider, but it creates a tremendous barrier in my faith and trusting in who God is. I can ask a million questions about why I went bankrupt or why there was more month than money or why this has happened. All of that we can engage and that's a whole other multifaceted part of faith. But there is a grand deception when you and I define who God is by our own experience rather than whom God has defined himself to be and the only one that harms is you. And then of course, those around us. And so a faith that is tested as it remains in Christ produces steadfastness which is patient endurance, the power to sustain, to endure. It is a tested faith and it is a maturing faith in Christ. And so in testing, what do you discover? You discover where your faith is really rooted. And when you discover it isn't in Jesus, you have two choices, religion or the gospel. Religion is, you better do something about that. The gospel is, he who began a good work is faithful to complete it in me. He is the author and he is the founder and he is the perfecter of my faith. Lord, I confess that I trusted in something other than you. Would you help me even in this state? Lord, I trust you. Would you be near and close? Thank you for not forsaking me when all else did. What is faith really? It's the assurance and the conviction we place in who Jesus is. And faith in Jesus is our anchored hope, our present trust, and our future certainty. Your faith will be attacked. It's why you've been given a shield of faith. Your faith will be tested by a world which sees faith in Christ as foolishness. But loved ones, there is a gift in the attack and in the testing. Sometimes you discover your faith is rooted elsewhere. And where you discover this, there is also the kindest invitation from your loving Heavenly Father to trust Him deeper yet again. James 1 verse 2 says it this way. Blessed is the man, blessed is the one who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. Which God has promised to those who love him. We sang, I will wait for you. I will wait for you. 
Holy Spirit, come renew all of my strength. Waiting is warfare because it's resisting the temptation to root in something else. Waiting is worship, not denial of what I'm going through. It is trusting in a God who even when I can't see it, is still at work and is still good, who promises even in the most profound of my disappointments, of our disappointments, to make all things new. And church, as we close, we need to pray for Fred, for Camille, for Elise, and for Imani, for the immediate and the extended paltry family. One second. Whose three-year-old daughter went to be with Jesus last night? Faith in Christ is not for the weak of heart. In church, we need to carry this entire family to Jesus because all loss is loss. But there is a profound mystery in moments such as this. And so let's pray. Heavenly Father, we lift up the entire poultry family. Holy Spirit, you promised to be so close and to bring comfort in moments where our words just fail. Holy Spirit, come. Minister tangibly to this family and may we as a church carry them to you in their moment of grief profoundly. Father, I also am mindful of those who are battling long-term sickness, cancer diagnoses, bankruptcy, addiction, relational brokenness. In the midst of the trials of life, Lord, I thank you that you have not given us a weak or anemic faith, but a faith in you that has overcome the world. And so, Father, I pray for your church that we would remain strong in trials. That we wouldn't be seduced by this empty, positive faith that's just delusion. But that we would root and abide in the one who had the worst from the world due to him, yet overcame the world. The one who experienced death and rose again. So Father, may we be people of faith in Jesus. And may it please you, Father. And may the fiery darts of the enemy, that which seeks to destroy that which is solid, may they be extinguished by us trusting that you are who you said you were and not defining you by our experience. Be with your church and be with the paltry family, we pray. Amen.